0: Section 14 of the Final Report from the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill and Offshore Drilling. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by P.J. Landau. Final Report from the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill and Offshore Drilling. Chapter 5. Response and Containment, Part 1. You're in it now. Up to your neck. No single story dominated newspaper headlines on April 21 and 22. America's most read papers, led with articles about the progress of financial reform legislation, the Supreme Court's 8-1 to one ruling in a case about video depictions of animal cruelty and the First Amendment, the death of civil rights leader Dorothy Height, and the Food and Drug Administration's plans to target sodium content in packaged foods. Editors appear to have viewed these as slow news days. The New York Times, for example, ran a front-page story on April 22 about how travelers in Europe were coping with flight cancellations caused by volcanic ash titled Routine Flights Become Overland Odysseys Minus Clean Socks. A reader who flipped 12 more pages into the Times would have encountered a less lighthearted headline. Quote, 11 remain missing after oil rig explodes off Louisiana. End quote. USA Today and the Wall Street Journal covered the Deepwater Horizon explosion on their front pages on April 22. The articles described the tragic accident and ensuing search and rescue operation. USA Today said it, quote, could be one of the worst offshore drilling accidents in U.S. history, end quote, but did not discuss the potential for environmental calamity. As the Los Angeles Times put it, quote, Coast Guard experts worked to assess any environmental cleanup that may be necessary, but the main focus was on the missing workers, end quote. Other dimensions of the disaster would emerge in the days that followed. Early response, April 20 through 28. On the night of April 20, as the Deepwater Horizon burned and the RIG survivors huddled on the Bankston, the response began. Coast Guard helicopters from the Marine Safety Unit in Morgan City, Louisiana, searched for missing crew members. The first Coast Guard cutter to join the search was the Pompano, with others to follow. An offshore supply vessel found two burned life rafts. Coast Guard responders knew that approximately 700,000 gallons of diesel fuel were on the rig and could spill into the Gulf. By 10 o'clock the next morning, planes involved in the search for survivors reported a variably colored sheen two miles long by half a mile wide on the water. The captain of the Marine Safety Unit, Joseph Paredes, directed these preliminary efforts. He became the first Federal on-scene coordinator under what is known as the National Contingency Plan, a set of federal regulations prescribing the government's response to spills and threatened spills of oil and other hazardous materials. Under the plan, when a spill occurs in coastal waters, the Coast Guard has the authority to respond. As the search and rescue continued, on April 21, the oily sheen grew, more Coast Guard personnel and resources became involved, and Rear Admiral Mary Landry took over as Federal On-Scene Coordinator. The commander of Coast Guard District 8, which includes, among other regions, the Gulf Coast from Texas to the Florida Panhandle, she would remain Federal On-Scene Coordinator until June 1. While the firefighting efforts continued, she told reporters, quote, We are only seeing minor sheening on the water. We do not see a major spill emanating from this incident, end quote. At this point, Admiral Landry's concern was the fuel oil that could spill from the rig, though she cautioned, quote, we don't know what's going on subsurface, end quote. As Coast Guard vessels continued the search and rescue operation, private offshore supply vessels sprayed water on the fire. Transocean hired Smith Salvage Americas, a salvage company, to try to save the rig. There was confusion about whether Transocean, the Coast Guard, the salvage company or anyone at all was directing the firefighting operations captain james Hanselik, chief of incident response in district eight would later say that the coast guard which was focusing on the search and rescue and then on the spreading oil quote, monitored what was going on but was not directing any firefighting resources end quote. by the morning of april twenty one the rig was listing at eleven fifty three that evening it shifted and leaned even more at ten twenty two a m on april twenty two the rig sank taking with it the diesel fuel still on board by that time the coast guard had established an incident command post in a BP facility in homa louisiana b p had formed a command post in its corporate headquarters in houston texas shortly after the explosion and the coast guard established an incident command post there as well these incident command posts along with one in mobile alabama and others established later would become the centers of response operations with their activities directed by the federal on-scene coordinator as part of the government's unified command the latter is a command structure created and implemented by the national contingency plan which integrates the responsible party here bp with federal and state officials, quote, to achieve an effective and efficient response, end quote. The Coast Guard established a unified area command, headquarters for the regional spill response, on April 23 in Robert, Louisiana, later moving it to New Orleans. It eventually included representatives from the federal government, Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, and BP. Other federal agencies, including the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, and Minerals Management Service, MMS, immediately sent emergency responders to the Unified Area Command and Incident Command posts. A host of senior officials, including Secretary of the Interior Ken Salazar and Secretary of Homeland Security Janet Napolitano, briefed the President on their department's efforts on the afternoon of April 22. Members of the National Response Team, drawn from the 16 federal agencies responsible for coordinating emergency preparedness and response to oil and hazardous substance pollution incidents, began conducting daily telephone meetings. Even before the rig sank, BP and Transocean directed their attention to the 53-foot-tall blowout preventer, BOP, stack sitting atop the Macondo well. At about 6 p.m. on April 21, DP and Transocean began using remotely operated vehicles to try to close the BOP and stop the flow of oil and gas fueling the fire. These early operations primarily attempted to activate the BOP's blind shear ram and seal off the well. During the attempts, MMS officials were embedded as observers in the operation centers at Transocean and DP headquarters in Houston. Because of the emergency, on-scene personnel from BP, Transocean, and Cameron, the company that manufactured the BOP, made decisions without the need for government approvals. Beginning on April 21, and continuing throughout the effort to control the well, Secretary Salazar received daily updates through conference calls with BP's technical teams. The initial news was encouraging. On April 23, Admiral Landry told the press that according to surveillance by remotely operated vehicles, the BOP, although, quote, it is not a guarantee, end quote, appeared to have done its job, sealing off the flow of oil and preventing any leak. The good news did not last. The Coast Guard suspended its search for the 11 missing workers later that day and when admiral landry spoke remotely operated vehicles had not yet surveyed the entire length of the broken riser pipe previously connecting the well to the now sunk deepwater horizon that still jutted out of the top of the bop by mid-afternoon on april twenty three the vehicles had discovered that oil was leaking from the end of the riser where it had broken off from the deepwater horizon when the rig sank by the next morning, the vehicles had also discovered a second leak from a kink in the riser located above the B.O.P. On April 24, Unified Command announced that the riser was leaking oil at a rate of 1,000 barrels per day. This number appears to have come from B.P., although how it was calculated remains unclear. As B.P. realized that the early efforts to stop the flow of oil had failed, it considered ways to control the well other than by triggering the BOP. A primary option was to drill a relief well to intersect the Macondo well at its source and enable a drilling rig to pump in cement to stop the flow of oil. While it could take more than three months to drill, a relief well was the only source control option mentioned by name in BP's initial exploration plan. Industry and government experts characterized a relief well as the only likely and accepted solution to a subsea blowout. BP had begun looking for available drilling rigs on the morning of April 21. It secured two and began drilling a primary relief well on May 2 and a backup well insisted upon by Secretary Salazar on May 17. Responders, meanwhile, shifted their focus to the release of large amounts of oil. Although the National Contingency Plan requires the Coast Guard to supervise an oil spill response in coastal waters, it does not envision that the Coast Guard will provide all or even most of the response equipment. That role is filled by private oil spill removal organizations which contract with the oil companies that are required to demonstrate response capacity. BP's main oil spill removal organization in the Gulf is the Marine Spill Response Corporation, a nonprofit created by industry after the Exxon Valdez disaster to respond to oil spills. The Marine Spill Response Corporation dispatched four skimmers within hours of the explosion. BP's oil spill response plan for the Gulf of Mexico claimed that response vessels provided by the Marine Spill Response Corporation and other private oil spill removal organizations could recover nearly 500,000 barrels of oil per day. Despite these claims, the oil spill removal organizations were quickly outmatched. While production technology had made great advances since Exxon Valdez, see Chapter 2, spill response technology had not. The Oil Pollution Act of 1990, by requiring double hulls in oil tankers, had effectively reduced tanker spills, but it did not provide incentives for industry or guaranteed funding for federal agencies to conduct research on oil spill response. Though incremental improvements in skimming and boom had been realized in the intervening 21 years, the technologies used in response to the Deepwater Horizon and Exxon Valdez oil spills were largely the same. If BP's response capacity was underwhelming, some aspects of its response plan were embarrassing. In the plan, BP had named Peter Lutz as a wildlife expert on whom it would rely. He had died several years before BP submitted its plan. BP listed seals and walruses as two species of concern in case of an oil spill in the Gulf. These species never see Gulf waters and the link in the plan that purported to go to the Marine Spill Response Corporation website actually led to a Japanese entertainment site. Congressional investigation revealed that the response plans submitted to MMS by ExxonMobil, Chevron, Phillips, and Shell were almost identical to BP's. They, too, suggested impressive but unrealistic response capacity, and three included the embarrassing reference to walruses. See Chapter 3 for more discussion of these plans. By April 25, responders had started to realize that the estimated spill volume of 1,000 barrels per day might be inaccurate. Dispersants applied to break up the surface slick were not having the anticipated effect. Either the dispersants were inexplicably not working, or the amount of oil was greater than previously suspected. Between April 26 and April 28, BP personnel within Unified Command reportedly said that they thought 1,000 to 6,000 barrels were leaking each day. To alert government leadership that the spill could be larger than 1,000 barrels per day, a NOAA scientist created a one-page report on April 26, estimating the flow rate at roughly 5,000 barrels per day. He based this estimate on other responders' visual observations of the speed with which oil was leaking from the end of the riser, as well as the size and color of the oil slick on the gulf's surface. Both methodologies, the scientist recognized, were highly imprecise. He relied on rough guesses, for example, of the velocity of the oil as it left the riser and the thickness of the surface slick. He told a NOAA colleague in Unified Command that the flow could be 5,000 to 10,000 barrels per day. At a press conference on April 28, Admiral Landry stated, quote, NOAA experts believe the output could be as much as 5,000 barrels, end quote, emphasis added. Although it represented a five-fold increase over the then-current figure, 5,000 barrels per day was a back-of-the-envelope estimate and Unified Command did not explain how NOAA calculated it. Nevertheless, for the next four weeks, it remained the official government estimate of the spill size. The response ramps up, April 29 to May 1. At the peak of the response, more than 45,000 people participated. In addition to deploying active duty members to the Gulf, the Coast Guard called up reservists, some 1,100 Louisiana National Guard troops served under the direction of the Unified Command. The Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, NOAA, and other federal agencies shifted hundreds of responders to the region. Consistent with the Unified Command framework, BP played a major role from the outset. Most Coast Guard responders had a BP counterpart. For instance, Doug Suttles, BP's Chief Operating Officer of Exploration and Production, was the counterpart to the Federal On-Scene Coordinator. BP employees were scattered throughout the command structure in roles ranging from waste management to environmental assessment. Sometimes, a BP employee supervised Coast Guard or other Federal responders. The preference under the National Contingency Plan is for the federal on-scene coordinator to supervise response activities while the responsible party conducts and funds them. When a spill, quote, results in a substantial threat to public health or welfare of the United States, end quote, the plan requires the federal on-scene coordinator to direct all response efforts. The Coast Guard also has the option to, quote, unquote, federalize the spill, conducting and funding all aspects of the response through the oil spill liability trust fund and later seeking reimbursement from the responsible party but most spills especially when the responsible party has deep pockets and is willing to carry out response activities federalizing is not preferred coast guard leaders shaped by their experience implementing the national contingency plan through a unified command system viewed the responsible party as a co-combatant in the fight against the oil. From their perspective, BP took its role as responsible party seriously and had an open checkbook for response costs. That did not mean BP was happy to pay. Tony Hayward, the chief executive officer of BP, reportedly asked the board members, quote, "'What the hell did we do to deserve this?' End quote. Though willing to fund and carry out the response, BP had no available tested technique to stop a deep water blowout other than the lengthy process of drilling a relief well. Forty years earlier, the government had recognized the need for subsea containment technology. In 1969, following the Santa Barbara Channel spill, the Nixon administration had issued a report recommending, in part, that, quote, underwater methods to collect oil from subsea leaks should be developed, end quote. For deepwater wells, however, such development had never occurred. Within a week of the explosion, BP embarked on what would become a massive effort to generate containment options, either by adapting shallow water technology to the deepwater environment or by designing entirely new devices. Different teams at BP's Houston headquarters focused on different ways either to stop the flow of oil or to collect it at the source. Each team had what amounted to a blank check. As one contractor put it, quote, Whatever you needed, you got it. If you needed something from a machine shop and you couldn't jump in line, you bought the machine shop. End quote. While the Coast Guard oversaw the response at the surface, MMS primarily oversaw source control operations. BP would draft detailed procedures describing an operation it wished to perform around the wellhead. MMS and Coast Guard officials in Houston participated in the drafting process to help identify and mitigate hazards, including risks to worker safety. At Unified Area Command, Lars Herbst, MMS Gulf of Mexico Regional Director, or his deputy, Mike Saucier, would review and approve the procedures before the federal on-scene coordinator gave the final go-ahead. This hierarchy of approvals remained in place throughout the containment effort. MMS was the sole government agency charged with understanding deepwater wells and related technology such as BOPs, but its supervision of the containment effort was limited, in line with its role in overseeing deepwater drilling more generally. Its staff did not attempt to dictate whether BP should perform an operation, determine whether it had a significant likelihood of success, or suggest consideration of other options. This limited role stemmed in part from a lack of resources. At most, MMS had four to five employees in Houston trying to oversee BP's efforts. One employee described his experience as akin to standing in a hurricane. Interviews of MMS staff members involved in the containment effort also suggest that the agency did not view itself as capable of or responsible for providing more substantive oversight. One MMS employee asserted that BP, and industry more broadly, possessed ten times the expertise that MMS could bring to bear on the complex problem of deepwater spill containment. Another pointed out that MMS had trouble attracting the most talented personnel who were more likely to work in industry where salaries are higher. A third MMS employee stated that he could count on one hand the people from the agency whom he would trust to make key decisions in an effort of this magnitude. Perhaps most revealingly, two different MMS employees separately recalled being asked, one by Secretary Salazar and the other by Assistant Secretary Tom Strickland, what they would do if the U.S. government took over the containment effort. Both said they would hire BP or another major oil company. Though the Coast Guard and MMS believed they had to work closely with BP, Others in government did not share this view of the relationship with the responsible party. At an April 29 press conference with several senior administration officials, Coast Guard Rear Admiral Sally Bryce O'Hara referred to BP as, quote, our partner, end quote, prompting Secretary Napolitano to emphasize, quote, they are not our partner, end quote. Secretary Salazar later said on CNN, that the government would keep its, quote, boot on the neck, end quote, of BP. While struggling to explain its oversight role to the public, the federal government increased its commitment to the spill response. On April 29, a week after the rig sank and a day after the flow rate estimate rose to 5,000 barrels per day, the Coast Guard designated the disaster a, quote, spill of national significance, end quote the first time the government had used that designation. A spill of national significance is one, quote, that due to its severity, size, location, actual or potential impact on the public health and welfare or the environment, or the necessary response effort, is so complex that it requires extraordinary coordination of federal, state, local, and responsible party resources to contain and clean up the discharge. End quote. the designation permitted a national incident commander to quote, assume the role of the federal on-scene coordinator in communicating with affected parties and the public and coordinating federal state local and international resources at the national level End quote. other than the quoted sentence the national contingency plan is silent on the role of the national incident commander who can fill the position and what tasks he or she will handle. As a result, there is no clear line between the National Incident Commander's responsibilities and those of the Federal On-Scene Coordinator. During the Deepwater Horizon spill response, the National Incident Commander coordinated interagency efforts on the wide variety of issues responders faced and dealt with the high-level political and media inquiries, while the Federal On-Scene Coordinator generally retained oversight of day-to-day operations. More than anyone else, the National Incident Commander became the face of the Federal response. When President Obama visited the Gulf on May 2, a fisherman asked who would pay the bills while he was out of work. The President responded that the National Incident Commander would take care of it. On May 1, Secretary Napolitano announced that Admiral Thad Allen the outgoing commandant of the Coast Guard and then its only four-star admiral, would serve as National Incident Commander. Admiral Allen was well known in the Gulf. He had previously overseen the ocean rescue and return to Cuba of alien Gonzalez in 1999, the Coast Guard's work securing harbors along the eastern seaboard after the attacks of September 11, 2001, and the federal response to Hurricanes Katrina and Rita after the Bush administration asked him to replace the stumbling director of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, Michael Brown, as the lead federal official. His leadership during Katrina was widely considered a success. A Baton Rouge advocate editorial published near the end of his time in the Gulf highlighted his local popularity and thanked him for his service. Less celebrated in the media, but no less important for the task facing him as National Incident Commander was Admiral Allen's role in overseeing a 2002 simulation that tested the readiness of the Coast Guard and other agencies to respond to a spill of national significance off the coast of Louisiana. As Commandant, Admiral Allen was already participating in the response, and he put off his scheduled retirement when he became National Incident Commander. As the National Incident Command took shape in early May, BP's efforts to stop the flow of oil continued to focus on actuating the BOP, which BP still believed was the best chance of quickly shutting in the well. These efforts were plagued by engineering and organizational problems. For instance, it took nearly ten days for a Transocean representative to realize that the stack's plumbing differed from the diagrams on which BP and Transocean were relying, and to inform the engineers attempting to trigger one of the BOP's rams through a hydraulic panel that they had been misdirecting their efforts. Without properly recording the change, Transocean had reconfigured the BOP. The panel that was supposed to control that ram actually operated a different test ram which could not stop the flow of oil and gas. BP Vice President Harry Therins, who was BP's lead on BOP interventions, stated afterward that he was, quote, quite frankly astonished that this could have happened, end quote. While this and other problems delayed BP's efforts, the flow of oil and sand continued to wear down the BOP's parts, making closure more difficult. BP stopped trying to close the BOP on May 5. By May 7, it had concluded that, quote, the possibility of closing the BOP has now been essentially exhausted, end quote. In mid-May, at the suggestion of Secretary of Energy Stephen Chu, BP undertook gamma-ray imaging of the BOP, which lacked instrumentation to show the position of its rams. The imaging indicated that although the blind shear ram had closed at least partially, oil continued to flow past it. The Social and Political Nullification of the National Contingency Plan, April 29 to May 1. The hurricane-stricken Gulf states are all too familiar with emergency response. All are among the top dozen states in number of declared major disasters. State and local officials in the Gulf are accustomed to setting up emergency response structures pursuant to the Stafford Act under which the federal government provides funding and assists state and local governments during a major disaster. In contrast, the National Contingency Plan, which governs oil spills, gives the federal on-scene coordinator the power to direct all response actions. Thus, while the Stafford Act envisions a state-directed, though in part federally funded, response, the National Contingency Plan puts federal officials in charge. State and local officials chafed under federal control of the response. Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal's advisors reportedly spent days trying to determine whether the Stafford Act or the National Contingency Plan applied. On April 29, Governor Jindal declared a state of emergency in Louisiana, authorizing the director of the Governor's Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness to undertake any legal activities deemed necessary to respond and to begin coordinating state response efforts. These efforts took place outside of the Unified Command Framework. The governors of Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida followed suit, declaring states of emergency the next day. At the outset of the spill, the pre-designated state on-scene coordinators for Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi participated in unified command. These individuals were career oil spill responders, familiar with the National Contingency Plan, experienced in responding to spills, and accustomed to working with the Coast Guard. Some had participated in the 2002 spill exercise run by Admiral Allen, they shared the Coast Guard's view that the responsible party is an important ally, not an adversary, in responding to a spill. During this spill, however, the governors and other state political officials participated in the response in unprecedented ways, taking decisions out of the hands of career oil spill responders. These high-level state officials were much less familiar with spill response planning. In addition to the National Contingency Plan, each Coast Guard sector is an area with an area contingency plan created by relevant state and federal agencies. When confronted with a contingency plan setting out how the federal and state governments were supposed to run an oil response, one high-level state official told a Coast Guard responder that he never signed it. According to the Coast Guard officer, the state official was not questioning whether his signature appeared on the document but asserting that he had not substantively reviewed the plan. State and local officials largely rejected the pre-spill plans and began to create their own response structures. Because the majority of the oil would come ashore in Louisiana, these issues of control mattered most there. Louisiana declined to empower the officials that it sent to work with federal responders within the unified command, instead requiring most decisions to go through the governor's office. For example, the Louisiana representative at Unified Area Command could not approve the daily agenda of response activities. Responders worked around this problem, but it complicated operations. Local officials were even less familiar with oil spill planning, though they had robust experience with other emergencies. Under Louisiana law, parish presidents exercised substantial authority, mirroring that of the governor, during hurricanes and other natural disasters. The parishes wanted to assert that same control during the spill, and many used money distributed by BP to purchase their own equipment and establish their own operating centers outside of unified command. Eventually, the Coast Guard assigned a liaison officer to each parish president, who attempted to improve relationships with the parishes by providing information and reporting back to Unified Command on local needs. Local resentment became a media theme and then a self-fulfilling prophecy. Even those who privately thought the federal government was doing the best it could under the circumstances did not say so publicly. Coast Guard responders watched Governor Jindal and the TV cameras following him return to what appeared to be the same spot of oiled marsh day after day to complain about the inadequacy of the federal response even though only a small amount of marsh was then oiled. When the Coast Guard sought to clean up that piece of affected marsh Governor Jindal refused to confirm its location. Journalists encouraged state and local officials and residents to display their anger at the federal response and offered coverage when they did. Anderson Cooper reportedly asked a parish president to bring an angry, unemployed offshore oil worker on his show. When the parish president could not promise the worker would be angry, both were disinvited. As the media coverage grew more frenzied, the pressure increased on federal, state, and local officials to take action and to avoid being seen as in league with BP. What Admiral Allen would later call, quote, the social and political nullification, end quote, of the National Contingency Plan, which envisions unity of effort between the federal government, state governments, and the responsible party, was well under way. End of Section 14